Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. 7UP, the G7 tax deal breakthrough. Now attention turns to the fine print. Cryptocurrency? El Salvador plans to make Bitcoin legal tender. And Bezos blasts off. The billionaire and his brother are heading to space. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Hello and welcome to a new week on First Move. It's great to be with you as always. And we have lots coming up on the show, including the president of Eurasia Group, Ian Bremmer, weighing in on plans by El Salvador, where 70% of the population have no bank account, just to be clear, to make Bitcoin legal tender. How's that for some form of entrepreneurship? But have you ever heard of intrapreneurship, fixing big business from within? That's the focus of the League of Intrapreneurs. The co-founder will join us later on the show to discuss all that. Plus, if you could, would you spend $50 billion to make a return of $9 trillion? It sounds like a great deal to me. And that's what the IMF's chief economist says the world needs to do in order to end the COVID-19 pandemic. Gita Gopanath will explain later. And we'll also weigh in on the groundbreaking G7 agreement to overhaul the global tax system with a minimum corporation tax rate of 15%. And that's where we begin the drivers. John Harwood joins me now. John, great to have you with us. Getting the G7 on board with this is pretty momentous in of itself. Digital taxes, of course, remain in place until it's all agreed. The question is, how long does it take to implement? Because it does feel like, and we don't like this on this show, a first mover disadvantage, perhaps, rather than an advantage. Well, this is the first step, but there are a lot of steps uh, remaining to go. It's far from the last one. Uh, Among other things, this agreement that Janet Yellen has struck with other members of the G7 uh, and needs to uh, expand more broadly to deal with some of those smaller low-tax countries that uh, corporations have been using. It's got to get through the uh, uh, Congress here in the United States, and Republicans have expressed opposition to it. Uh, but it is uh, a significant reflection of Joe Biden's approach to his presidency and foreign policy uh, in his presidency. That is, he wants to work with other countries for common objectives. And one of the common objectives that the United States shares with other advanced economies is figuring out ways to avoid uh, having uh, multinational companies evade taxes by hopscotching around looking for low tax rates. And if everybody agrees to have a minimum tax, and if you can make that stick and if you can get it through all the places it needs to get through, that's going to have a big impact. I mean, this makes perfect sense. And to your point about the United States at a time when they're perhaps talking about raising corporation tax rates, you're at a relatively less of a disadvantage raising those rates if there's a broader minimum around the world, whether it's the G7 or I think to your point, as you were saying, perhaps the G20 nations too. But each individual government has to sign off on this. And when you look at what goes on in in Congress, the slim majority in the House, the challenges of the Senate, John, can the United States even agree to do this itself? Never mind other nations. Well, you could make an agreement and then you can try to propel it through the Congress. We're having a test right now of Joe Biden's ability to push through what is popular in the polls, that is raising taxes on large corporations, but difficult to accomplish politically, particularly because uh, Republicans are strongly opposed and some Democrats are reluctant. So uh, Joe Biden, for his domestic program, is pushing to raise the uh, U.S. corporate tax rate from 21 now, it's well over 15% now in the United States, to 20 
uh, 8%, but also to apply a minimum tax to companies that have been able to use legal deductions to avoid taxes. So uh, this is all part of a, um, a broader effort to raise taxes in ways that, again, if you take a poll, uh, large majorities of the American public are for this, and you find that in other advanced economies as well. But it's difficult to get from that popularity in the polls to the finish line in Congress. I can't help but think this is going to take years, John. See you in the next administration? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Shame. John Howard, thank you so much for that. All right, back to the future now with one of the biggest leverage buyout deals since the financial crisis. Private equity giants Blackstone, Carlisle and Hellman and Friedman have agreed to buy a medical supply maker and distributor Medline. The deal is worth more than $30 billion, including debt. Paul and Monica joins us now. Paul, I got excited when I saw this deal. The first LBO since the financial crisis reached the first thing, it's not just a sign that these big private equity giants have cash to splash, and we know that they do, but it's a sign of the conditions as well. Ultra low rates, ability to finance this kind of deal. What do we make of this deal? Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, deal, Julia, particularly when you note that there are several big private equity firms all pooling together to do one of these deals. This isn't an example where you have one PE firm coming in and swooping up a company. What I also find uh, fascinating with Medline is this is a family-run business, the Mills family that they've you know, started this company, and they are still going to be the biggest shareholder. So this isn't a typical PE type of deal where you have a publicly traded company that maybe had management that wasn't really all that top-notch getting put out of their misery, so to speak, by getting taken over by private equity firms that come in, slash payrolls and cut debt or add debt and really try and uh, make uh, you know, a, a business um, you know, more streamlined for an eventual IPO. This is not a publicly traded company. The Mills family will still be running things. So I think this is a reflection of just the demand for healthcare businesses right now in the age of COVID as an area where private equity is going to be targeted. Couldn't agree more. A massive firm that no one's ever heard of. But when you look at what they do, they're a huge supplier of medical equipment, gloves, gowns, diagnostic equipment. And I absolutely agree with you that we've been through 18 months of chaos in terms of shoring up supplies and the supply chain for medical equipment. And whether it's technologies of the future or simply about the supply chain, private equity understands the importance of having this insured going forward and the potential upside benefits in having that scalable? Yeah, without question. I think you are going to see more deals like this also because of the potential tax implications. You have concerns with family-run businesses about what's going to happen with regards to the capital gains tax. We know that President Biden is looking for a higher one. That might be one reason for family-run firms to look to cash in through sales of their businesses through private equity firms, although in this case, the, the Mills family still going to have a large interest in the firm and still be in charge kind of running the show, so to speak. But there are a lot of other family run businesses that might be willing to just say, hey, you know what, it's time to cash in and look at doing something else, maybe with the, you know, all that cash they get from a deal they start doing philanthropic investments and what have you. Yes, lots of signals in this deal. Thank you for sharing my excitement. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that geeking out. We really are geeks. Moving on from buyouts to Bitcoin, a drop the mic moment in Miami this weekend at the world's biggest Bitcoin conference. The president of El Salvador said he wants the Central American nation to be the first to adopt Bitcoin 
as legal tender. In the short term, this will generate jobs and help provide financial inclusion to thousands outside the formal economy. And in the medium and long term, we hope that this small decision can help us push humanity at least a tiny bit into the right direction. This is a really interesting one. Patrick Gottman joins us now with more. Patrick, a lot going on in terms of the politics in El Salvador, never mind something like this. But just in terms of the the politics and the ability to pass this in Parliament, if he says he wants this as legal tender, does that mean he probably gets it? Yes, absolutely. President Nayib Bukele has a supermajority. His appropriately named party, the New Ideas Party, uh, will back him on this uh, because uh, he is someone who has completely changed the face of politics and El Salvador, disrupting uh, the traditional two-party system, creating his own party. And he basically rules uh, by Twitter, uh, much like uh, other presidents, including former President Donald Trump. So uh, this is not a surprise many, to many people who do follow uh, this unique politician. And, and of course, uh, it is a genius marketing uh, strategy, a free marketing one, because just in uh, several days, people who probably couldn't find El Salvador on a map uh, at the beginning of the weekend are now Googling uh, li- listings and, and talking about buying property there. And Nayib Bukele on Twitter continued to make uh, his pitch, talking about El Salvador's great weather, world-class surfing, says it's one of the few countries with no property tax, there's no capital gains there. And this is really interesting, Julie. He says there'll be immediate permanent residency for crypto entrepreneurs. So this is generating a lot of buzz, but it also has some practical aspects for Salvadorans. The majority of that country uh, does not have a bank account. Uh, Many people receive remittances. Uh, Some $6 billion a year remittances flow from the United States. So using Bitcoin in the future for those remittances would be a way uh, to skirt to the traditional companies that do charge uh, for sending those remittances. So it really could have some interesting practical aspects uh, for Salvadorans uh, who are not part of uh, a traditional uh, economy in that country. We'll just have to see how that plays out. And of course, now that El Salvador looks like it will be the first country to adopt Bitcoin is a legal tender. Will other countries follow suit? Uh, are they the first of many countries to take this uh, interesting and bold move? Yeah, as, as PR campaigns go, it doesn't get better than this, Patrick, to, to your exact point. But a lot of the practicalities here remain completely unknown about how this works and the sort of timing on it. But um, yeah, fascinating move. Patrick Opman, thank you so much for that. And for much more on this, Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer will join us later in the programme. He has some uh, strong views on El Salvador, never mind the Bitcoin announcement. Now, from Bitcoin breakthrough to hardware on hold. A leading global chip supplier is suspending production at a site in Taiwan due to COVID-19. A total of three tech factories have reported clusters. And Will Ripley reports. We're outside the King Yuan Electronics Company. It is a key manufacturing hub for semiconductor testing around 100 kilometers southwest of Taipei. And it's one of three Taiwanese tech companies that are grappling right now with clusters of COVID-19 infection. This company is by far the hardest hit. They had to suspend their operations for two days, test more than 7,000 people, their entire workforce. So far, as of Sunday, they found around 200 cases most of them among migrant workers, people living in cramped dormitories, often with reportedly unsanitary conditions. If this sounds familiar, it's because we've seen similar outbreaks among migrant workers last year in Singapore and Malaysia and earlier this year in Thailand. So the migrant workers here in Taiwan now have a 14-day paid quarantine. And while this company has resumed operations, it's only Taiwanese local employees 
who are on duty right now. And this poses a grave threat to an already vulnerable semiconductor industry. Taiwan is the world's leading chip manufacturer. These chips power everything from automobiles to smartphones. And any sort of disruption to the supply chain could really have global ramifications. That's why the Taiwanese government is trying to get more vaccine doses onto this island as soon as possible. 23 million people live here. Fewer than 3% have received at least their first dose so far. Now, there are vaccine donations arriving from Japan and in the coming weeks from the United States. And the Taiwanese government hopes to have around 10 million doses available for the public by the end of August. But even that won't be enough to get the population vaccinated at a high enough percentage to protect this island and its semiconductor industry from future outbreaks. Will Ripley, CNN, Miaudi, Taiwan. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Members of Israel's parliament are meeting today to hear when the Speaker of the Knesset will set a vote on a new government. Naftali Bennett, the man set to become the next Prime Minister, wants to hold a vote of confidence this Wednesday. He's urging the Speaker not to delay or postpone the process. For more, CNN's Hadas Gold joins us now from the Israeli parliament. Hadas, you always say nothing's done until it's done in Israel. What's the likelihood of a postponement or a delay with this vote? Well, we just actually heard from the Speaker of the Israeli Parliament, Yariv Levine. He notified the Parliament that uh, the central city, Yair Lapid, had, had notified him that he was able to form a government. And all he said in the last few minutes was that by law, a session uh, for a confidence vote has to convene by June 14th. And then all he said was that uh, such a date will be scheduled later on, not telling us when this actual confidence vote will be, but only that by law it has to take place by Monday. Of course, it's within Netanyahu and his Likud party interest to push back this vote for as long as possible because every day that they get is an extra day to try to convince at least one person to defect and vote against this coalition. But the uh, prime minister in waiting, you could call him, Naftali Bennett, said in a speech last night trying to encourage Netanyahu not to leave a scorched earth behind him and to let this vote happen, to let the new government take place. I call from here on Mr. Netanyahu. Let go. Release the country to move on. People are allowed to vote for the establishment of a government, even if it is not you who is heading it. A government that is 10 degrees to the right than the current one, by the way. Now, the rhetoric and the language around this change of government has become so intense, so violent, that the head of Israel's security service uh, has issued a rare public statement trying to urge all sides to calm down, warning that this could lead to violence that he said could potentially be lethal. There is a fear here that this could lead to uh, a style of mob violence that the U.S. saw at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. It is very rare to hear from the head of the Israeli security service to give a statement like that. But since last week, since those coalition agreements were signed. Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies have been railing against this new government, calling it, uh, using words that really echo Donald Trump's uh, words, calling it a fraud, the scam of the century, saying that it's a government of deception. And Netanyahu is saying that even if he is in the opposition, he everything he can to try and topple this new government. Julia. Yeah, we hope calm prevails. Had us gold. Thank you so much for that there. All right, so to come here on First Move, spend $50 billion to see a $9 trillion boost to global GDP in 2025, so says the IMF. And the richest man on Earth reaches for the stars. Jeff Bezos says he will be going into space just 15 days after he steps down as CEO of Amazon. That's all next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. We spoke about the fiscal policy changes. Could big monetary policy changes be on the way to the latest U.S. inflation data coming out Thursday? We'll be closely watched for potential cues for a FOD Fed policy shift. In the meantime, U.S. futures are broadly unchanged at the moment, with the Dow doing slightly better than the others. Investors are clearly on a wait-and-see mode to begin the week. Hey, it's pre-market and it's Monday and it's early hours. There's more activity in commodities, however. Brent and U.S. crude pairing back after the WTI hit more than $70 per barrel for the first time in three years. The global recovery in demand and constrained supply pushing prices slightly higher, though, as you can see, easing back in the last few hours. Now, if we want to supercharge the global economic recovery, we need to spend $50 billion now on boosting the worldwide vaccine drive, so says the IMF and others. It calculates that $50 billion spent on vaccinations will pay off in the form of a $9 trillion increase in global GDP by 2025. The plan targets a worldwide vaccination rate of 60% by this time next year. Just to give you some perspective, the current worldwide rate is just 6%. And joining us now is Gita Gopinath. She's the chief economist at the IMF. Gita, fantastic to have you on the show. The message is, without this, we simply aren't going to exit the global pandemic. And that's the message. Uh, Hi, Julia. Indeed, I mean, I think it's abundantly clear at this point that the pandemic is not over anywhere until it's over everywhere. And there is, at this point, many parts of the world that haven't been able to vaccinate even their healthcare workers, while you have some other countries where you have very young populations being vaccinated. So it's absolutely essential at this point for countries to work together to ensure that we get to at least 40% in every country being vaccinated by the end of this year, and at least 60% by around this time uh, in 2022. And just to be clear on the money, um, the G20 is expecting to find $22 billion based on uh, the report that was provided. $15 billion is available from COVID-19 facilities set up by multinational development banks. So it's the 13 billion shortfall really that we're talking about. And you at the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization is saying, come on, we just need to find that extra bit to, to make such a crucial difference. So what the plan asks for is $35 billion in grants. Uh, The G20 uh, countries have recognized the need to uh, fund about $22 billion of those, and that leaves $13 billion. But the bottom line is that the money hasn't come through yet. So you still need the entire $35 billion to be funded, uh, and it has to happen soon. I think what countries need to recognize is that the window to realize the, the very large gains that you mentioned at the beginning from worldwide vaccinations is closing very quickly. And that's why we call for upfront financing at this point and upfront vaccine donations too, which is a very important part of the plan. Just be very clear. You said that the money isn't coming through yet, though $35 billion has has been effectively pledged. How much has come through, Gita? Uh, so, Julia, $35 billion haven't, I would not say that that's been effectively pledged. I think there's been an expression of interest in saying that we need to cover that 35 billion, those, right. that 22 billion off those 35 billion. But in terms of actual pledges, a few billion have come through recently, but okay. nowhere near the full amount that's needed. Yeah, I mean, it's just not enough. Um, it involves a number of elements that the United States has started to address in the millions of doses that they've pledged to give to other nations now. Also relaxing the supply chain, which is important too. And then there's the other angle, which is sort of perhaps 
sharing patents on some of these vaccines. Where does the IMF stand on patent sharing for some of these vaccines and allowing manufacturing to take place in other nations around the world outside of the current? Because I I saw some comments from Bill Gates earlier this year, and he said even he wasn't necessarily in favour of that. Where does the IMF stand? So the plan that we have here is about solving the problem here and now. Uh, and for that, we'll be looking at is the vaccine supply that is expected to come in, which is quite substantial. And the problem is about making sure that production actually happens and to share it so that all parts of the world at least get to 60% coverage uh, by next year. Now, in terms of uh, uh, patent waivers, this, there is an ongoing discussion on that front, and we are in support of not leaving any stone unturned. But of course, that will take time. We completely agree that over time there has to be a push towards more diversified production in different locations, not just in some parts of the world, which is what we have right now. Voluntary technology transfers would be an important part of that. But again, the plan is for solving the problem right now or the next 12 months. And uh, for that vaccine sharing, you know, ensuring free flow of raw materials and finished vaccines and upfront financing because commitments alone just don't work. Yeah, it's upfront donations, upfront financing and at-risk investment, I guess, is the other thing to ensure downside risks. Exactly right, because we know that there are these new variants that are uh, cropping up for which countries might need booster shots. So we have an $8 billion that's set aside for exactly to make sure that there are about a billion doses available next year to vaccinate low and low middle income countries, especially the high risk groups. Yeah, there shouldn't need to be this much push and incentive, but it's there. I mean, as return on investment goes, and I sort of made this comment at the, at the top of the show, if you were asked to invest $50 billion, if you had it in order to achieve a return of $9 trillion, which is what you're saying will be added to output by, by 2025 as a result of this, um, it's sort of an, a, a no-brainer. Um, but you're also saying 40% of this benefit actually will accrue to the richest nations in the world. This is one of the best investments you can make at this point. I mean, think about it. If you can put $1 in today and know that by 2025, you will earn $180. I don't think there's any other investment that beats that at this point. So it is it is a very, very good investment. And it makes the world, keeps the world in a much safer place than where we are uh, at this point. Someone will be yelling at the TV screen going, cryptocurrencies could, could be an alternative option, but we'll, we'll skip over that. Um, the other point you make is a trillion dollars in additional tax revenues. And I, I do want to move on and talk about something else that I think has been vitally important and agreed in the last few days, at least the conversation to continue having the conversation. And that's the G7 talking about a global minimum tax rate of 15 percent. What do you make of those discussions and the agreement? The IMF has uh, for a long time called Mm. for a global minimum corporate tax because we certainly want to avoid the race to the bottom, uh, which would happen in the absence of such a global minimum. And I think it's very clear coming out of this COVID crisis that countries will need to have sound social safety nets, put make sure public goods are provided. Uh, And to finance that, you need to be able to earn revenue. So you need to make sure that everybody pays pays their fair share of taxes. Now, the We'll have to figure out where the actual tax rate settles. They said at least 50 percent, 15 percent, I'm sorry. Uh, and then, of course, there is the question about who gets taxed and what the tax base is going to be and what countries can do. So there are many more details that still need to be worked out. But this is a very welcome first step. Are you confident or how confident are you that this perhaps could be something that 
the G20 nations could, could gather around and agree to? Because you raise a great point. Actually, there's never been perhaps a more important moment to shore up a nation's finances and the social security structures that are in place and, and make sure that big corporations pay their fair share. Uh, indeed, it's you know it's heartening to know that uh, countries are coming together. But you know it's not going to be an easy battle. Uh, there are a very large number of countries that have to be involved, and the question is what happens if a country decides not to sign up? Can another country just then impose uh, taxes to make up for the for the difference? So there are many details that still have to be worked out. 139 countries are involved in these discussions uh, with the OECD. Uh, but again, you know, we've never had this kind of momentum before. So this is extremely welcome. Gita, very quickly, uh, fast forward five years. Do we have a established minimum corporate tax rate at the G20 level? Yes or no? I would like to think so. Yes. Well, I guess but we're not confident. Not to- <laughs> <laughs> I know. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Two sceptics, quiet. Gita, great to have you on. Thank you so much. Gita Gopinath, Chief Economist at the IMF. Great to have your perspective on the show today. Thank you. Okay, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. El Salvador working to become the first nation in the world to use Bitcoin as legal tender. Right now, it's the US dollar, just to be clear. The country's popular young president says the cryptocurrency would make it easier for people to send money from abroad as remittances are a huge part of the economy. Many citizens also don't have access to bank accounts. Joining us now is Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, fantastic to have you on the show as always. The reason why I wanted to get you on this is because I read an op-ed that you wrote in Time magazine last month talking about what's going on um, in El Salvador and some of the changes that this young president has made. I guess this decision's not out of character, but did this one even catch you off guard? Well, he his currency is he's attached to the U.S. dollar and he's got massive indebtedness. And his major problem, even though he's at 90 percent, 90 percent approval ratings in his country right now. And that's been consistent since he's won election a year ago. Um, but his economy is in trouble. And uh, the IMF deal that he desperately needs, he's not going to get because he's antagonized the Biden administration pretty strongly. So what does he do uh, to get away from the dollar? Capital controls is an enormous hit um, to the country's middle class and working class. So he's, he doesn't want to do that. It's going to hurt his popularity. And so here's a guy who sort of fancies himself the Elon Musk of the Northern Triangle, if that's a thing, and suddenly decides he's going to make Bitcoin uh, an, an acceptable national currency. And that that is a potential path to, de- to de-dollarization. Uh, and, and there are a lot of other countries around the world, I think, that are going to watch this experiment very closely. It's not that Bukele necessarily has a long-term financial strategy. He just knows that he's getting pressed hard by the Americans. And he doesn't want um, to have to cede any, so- any more sovereignty to the U.S. I mean, there are big companies working on this to try and help him. But I think the practicalities of this are pretty mind blowing, at least in the short term. And I did note that Bitcoin didn't even budge over the weekend. And I'm sure this wasn't in the price. It's just everybody's trying to work out the implications of what this means and if it's even practically and you know, the reasons for doing it notwithstanding. 
Well, you, you wouldn't stop allowing the dollar to be used as a legal currency, so right. it would be in parallel, but also right. probably be a lot more barter going on in El Salvador. But certainly it is true um, that you know you would see significant increase in usage as a consequence. Um, and you know Bitcoin is the largest by far uh, of the cryptocurrencies. I, and I, I think that this no, this is not going to move the needle on Bitcoin per se. But you could easily imagine other countries around the world, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, other Central American countries, maybe even a country like Sri Lanka that otherwise would be facing capital controls and wants to find a way to have more influence locally. Um, you, you could imagine them moving uh, away uh, from, from their existing currencies towards Bitcoin. I think it's possible. Yeah, and I think those that are huge proponents of of the crypto space and the underlying technology, when you have a nation where 70% of the country doesn't have a bank account, where remittances, and they pay huge amounts of fees on those remittances, is 20% of GDP, then again, you, you can see the benefits if they can make this work. But it is a decentralized concept being applied to a increasingly centralized regime. And I just want people to understand sort of the politics of what's going on here and some of the things that have, to your point, sort of alarmed the international community, firing the attorney general, um, removing established politicians. Um, he's making huge steps that he says is trying to um, clean the swamp, if we use uh, former President Trump's term. But it is alarming some people. The power shift just is this alarming week, people. Just this weekend, uh, he arrested uh, another opposition figure on very dubious uh, corruption charges. He also suspended um, an organization of American states supported um, anti-corruption uh, group uh, and that was supported by the United States as well. So one of the reasons why he's not concerned about moving towards a currency that he doesn't have centralized control over is he has centralized control of everything else. As you said, he's gotten rid of all of his justices. He has, I mean, really, there are no checks and balances domestically on Bukele right now. And when, you, when you're a leader whose population is prepared to allow you to support pretty much authoritarian-oriented steps inside his country, then what he decides to do with his currency is, is not much of a downside risk for him. Yeah, I, I saw an article in light of um, his overruling the Constitutional Court last year that said that the police couldn't arrest people for flouting uh, lockdown. And he said, yeah, you can. You can. You can arrest them. Um, savior or strongman for the nation. Quite frankly, the question I think perhaps still remains. Um, but if we go back to to the beginning of the conversation, in light of those that look at digital assets and cryptocurrencies and say, you know, they're used for fraud, they're used for nefarious purposes, is this a good thing? Do you think for broader adoption, or do you think there will be those outside? that look at this and say, look, this is another case of a, a regime gone rogue that's turning to something like Bitcoin as a as a way out, a way to flout yeah, it won't be institutions. Seen, it won't be seen as a positive by the United States. Keep in mind that the biggest issue the Americans have with El Salvador is their inability to police their borders and the fact you have a lot of illegal immigrants going from El Salvador through Mexico trying to get to the United States. The U.S. has a completely non-functional relationship with this government. And this will be seen as a move away from the U.S. and a move away from the dollar. So anything you're going to see from the government is going to be this is negative. And keep in mind, a country like the United States 
likes fiat currency backed by the government, supported by the central bank. Bitcoin does not do that, has no intrinsic value. None of these cryptos do. Um, and so uh, this is not going to be seen as a positive by the established powers of the world. Having said that, you know, I mentioned Elon Musk before, wealthiest man on the planet and a, an enormous advocate of various cryptocurrencies. So I think that you're going to continue to see a whole bunch of people that really believe in the asset class, even if it's still comparatively small and deeply speculative, incredible volatility, right? When you when you see the amount of money it costs to trade in Bitcoin and the enormous amount of volatility of what it's worth over time, you can't imagine that the average El Salvadoran is going to do better as a consequence of being exposed to that currency. I don't believe that. Yeah, the cost of like the volatility in that for a remittance, like overnight, the change in the difference in value that you're trying to send home is um, could be vast and actually incredibly painful. But that's a whole separate conversation. I do want to get your views very quickly. And I always do this when I get you on cybersecurity, because I do feel like particularly in the United States, we're spending a great deal of time talking about the capital attacks on January the 6th. And the cybersecurity risk for me dwarfs that. And I just want to play you something, get your get your view on it, because on CNN State of the Union, the U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm warned that very malign actors have the U.S. in their sights. Just listen to this. Do you think that adversaries of the United States have the capability right now to shut down the power grid? Uh, yeah, they do. I mean, I think that there are very malign actors who are trying, even as we speak. There are thousands of attacks on all aspects of the energy sector and the private sector generally. It's happening all the time. And this is why the private sector and the public sector have to work together. And this is what the president is doing. Ian, food supplies, energy supplies. I just feel like we're not paying enough attention to this and we're too focused on other things. Julia, Jennifer just conflated two things, and she shouldn't have done it. Um, yes, it's true that the United States uh, is vulnerable in terms of its critical infrastructure being shut down by malign actors. It is not true that we are vulnerable to that um, from terrorist organizations um, or from criminal syndicates. Um, and so it's very important to understand that the United States also has the ability to take out the critical infrastructure of China, of Russia. State-based cyber attacks are, are a little bit like the mutually assured destruction from nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, in other words, we can destroy each other, and that's why we don't, uh, so far at least. That's mostly why we limit ourselves and our adversaries limit themselves to high-level espionage. The ransomware attacks we've seen against Colonial Pipeline, against the Steamship Authority this last week, against you know major meat distributors— that's coming from, you know, functionally criminal corporations that even have set up help desks. And they understand this market is in equilibrium. They, they, are, they have a large capacity to hit all sorts of corporate actors. They want to make it relatively inexpensive and easy for you to pay the ransom, get back online so they can hit again and again and again. And that's a business model that's explosive. It's an increasing tax on you doing business. And the U.S. government has absolutely zero ability to police it, especially because most of it is happening inside countries that have no interest in policing it themselves. That yeah. is the key geopolitical issue we have to deal with. Yeah, those individual nations have a responsibility to tackle the attackers that are based within their nations. 
the question is, is just will they? Well, we, we would we would like to argue that they certainly don't see it that way. And we're going to have to force them because otherwise nothing's going to happen. Agree. Ian Bremmer, great to have you on the show, as always. President of Eurasia Group and GCRO Media. Thank you for that. All right, next. From Amazon to the edge of space, Jeff Bezos about to make the journey of a lifetime. Find out who he's taking with him. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. It's one giant leap. Whichever way you look at it, Jeff Bezos' rocket company, Blue Origin, has released the passenger list for its first crewed flight. And the billionaire himself will be leading the charge. Rachel Crane is on the story for us. Rachel, and it's a family affair because Jeff's taking his brother. That's right. Jeff Bezos will not be making this historic uh, space flight alone in probably the coolest gift that has ever been given among siblings. He's bringing along his brother, Mark Bezos, for this historic suborbital flight to space for uh, along with his company, Blue Origin. Now, Jeff says he will be fulfilling a lifelong goal of his getting these astronaut wings. He's wanted to go to space since he was five years old, Julia. Take a listen. You see the Earth from space, it changes you. It changes your relationship with this planet, with humanity. It's one Earth. I wanted to go on this flight because it's a thing I've wanted to do all my life. It's an adventure. It's a big deal for me. I invited my brother to come on this first flight. I wasn't even expecting him to say that he was going to be on the first flight. And then when he asked me to go along, I was just awestruck. Seriously? If you're willing, if you want to. Now, Julia, the flight is set to take off on July 20th, which also happens to be the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. That flight will be taking place from Blue's facility in West Texas. And this flight is significant because Blue Origin was founded over 20 years ago, and they've been working on this spacecraft that will take them on this journey, the New Shepard, for over six years now. And they've had 15 consecutive successful uh, uncrewed flights of the system. But now the company's saying they're ready to fly, paying customers, and probably in the ultimate sign of confidence in his team, Jeff Bezos putting his own life on the line here along with his brother. And it's noteworthy to point out that Virgin Galactic, which is Richard Branson's space tourism company, they have long had similar goals to Blue Origin regarding space tourism. And Branson had famously declared that, you know, he would be the first paying passenger on his commercial space line and get those astronaut wings. But unfortunately for Branson, it looks like like Bezos and his brother Mark are going to beat him to space. But Julie, I also wanted to tell you a little bit more about this journey that they'll be taking. Um, they'll be flying in a fully autonomous spacecraft, meaning that there will be no pilots on board. They'll be blasted up to three times the speed of sound, up to an apogee more than you know 60 miles above Earth, uh, officially gaining those astronaut wings. And after experiencing a few incredible minutes of weightlessness that I and space enthusiasts all around the world will be incredibly jealous of. Um, the dome-shaped spacecraft will bring those passengers back to Earth in a parachute landing, Julia. But certainly going to be an amazing family affair, as you said. I know, your enthusiasm is always clear to see you, Rachel. It makes me laugh. It's a take-me-with-you moment. And there is a lottery, I believe, for the last seat. It's being auctioned. I saw the cost. It was a mere $2.8 million as of Sunday evening. So, yeah. You and I, I think, can want on, but we will continue to talk about it. Rachel Crane, thank you for that. All right, next up on First Move, 
An inside job. They're the red tape busting unsung heroes that help companies find their superpowers. Next up, we meet the intrapreneurs. Welcome back to First Move with a look at how U.S. markets are shaping up this morning. And it's a cautious start to trading with investors digesting the global minimum corporate corporate tax agreement and wait for the U.S. Consumer Price Index data later this week. Of course, key for inflation tech stocks. Actually, we're, we're a little unchanged. We're a little bit softer. So, yes, we shall see how this shapes up as the session progresses. We've got the S&P 500 within touching distance of a record high. So we shall see. In the meantime, bureaucracy and thinking inside the box are just two of the things that had better watch out this week because it's officially Global Entrepreneur Week. What's an intrapreneur, you ask? Think of it as someone who works inside an existing institution, troubleshooting problems and finding ways to make the organization truly shine. Maggie Dupree is the co-founder of the League of Entrepreneurs, and she joins us now. Maggie, fantastic to have you on the show. It seems like the message from entrepreneurs is even if you're not the founder of a firm, you can still be innovative and you can still make huge changes and you probably have huge resources perhaps compared to those to do it. Well, that's exactly right. Thanks, Julia, so much for having me here uh, as we're celebrating Global Entrepreneur Week. And you know, most people know what an entrepreneur is. I heard your segment about Jeff Bezos just now. So when we say entrepreneur, we think of people like Jeff and we celebrate them because of their blue sky thinking and the fact they, they bring these new realities to life. Well, imagine those were your employees, right? You know, that same energy exists at all levels of the organization. Um, it's what's got us through the pandemic, right? If you think about how CNN has had to learn how to go digital, right? How we had to move our employees to working from home, how, you know, General Motors, their employees begged to make ventilators. We had brewers at AB InBev making hand sanitizer. We've just seen this incredible moment of entrepreneurial capacity from our employees that's been so impressive. And we're going to need that going forward as we recover and look ahead to the challenges that we face uh, as a global society. Yeah, it's sort of less sexy, it seems, to work for a big organization versus working for a startup. And you see that in some of the surveys, this sort of relatively high disengagement level at work. And actually, it feels like in some ways, this is a way of challenging that. Absolutely. It starts with purpose. It's this idea that I care about something that's bigger than my day job, right? And we all we all have something that we care about, whether that's the health of our communities, whether that's climate change, whether it's the inequalities that we've faced. You know, we have these deep-seated values and these things we care about. Well, what if we invited our employees to think about that from their day jobs, right? So I'm in brand marketing and I care about climate change. What does that look like? Or, you know, the famous campaigns at Dove about self-esteem. And here's the, the good news is that it's good for business, right? So if you can get your employees engaged and caring and innovating about something, you know, they're more likely to work for you. They're more likely to stay with you. Your customers are also going to feel that, right? So it impacts on your brand. So there's money to be made here. You know, this isn't just about philanthropy or corporate responsibility. It really is about business uh, sustainability and growth. Yeah. And just to make it practical, I mean, you have on entrepreneurs, I almost said entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs working at places like LinkedIn. Netflix was a, a great example. Just talk to me about yeah. Aaron Mitchell, because he managed to convince yeah. the CFO of Netflix to put a lot of money into black owned banks. 
Well, I love this story. And what I love about Aaron Mitchell's story at Netflix is the simplicity of it. So Aaron Mitchell, and also the fact that he was working in human resources. So the point about entrepreneurs is they can pop up anywhere in your company. So Aaron was working in human resources at Netflix when he'd read a book about the lack of access to capital in marginalized, particularly in black communities in the US, and how that was a real systemic barrier to growth and economic development for those communities. So he went to the CFO of Netflix and said, hey, you know, I have this idea. What if we put all the cash reserves that we're holding into black owned banks as a way to address that problem? And sure enough, he made a compelling case uh, and Netflix did invest 100 million into black owned banks. And they're doing a lot more than that. But I just love the fact that, first of all, Aaron was just a guy in human resources who had an idea and he had the courage to step up and, you know, ask and, and share that idea with someone else in the company. Yeah, and you wrote a book yeah. as well. The community's written a book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Pathfinding, just practical tools to be an entrepreneur within an organization or within your business, simply how to make a start and making a difference. We have, you know, what we found is, you know, you might have got a business school or, you know, journalism school or, you know, a master's degree, but we don't learn about being entrepreneurs. And so uh, what the League of Entrepreneurs does and what Global Entrepreneur Week is about is learning from each other. You know, how did you make the case to invest in climate change to your board? You know, how did you make a PowerPoint that convinced somebody to care about, you know, low income communities? So what are the tips and tricks? So it's everything from high level business business case onto, I love the story of Gib Bullock at Accenture, who was uh, developing Accenture Development Partnerships. Uh, yep. He created a fake, a fake press release to get people <laughs> excited to see the possibilities of his idea. Just about making a difference. Maggie, great to chat to you. Maggie Dupree there. Thank you very much. Okay, so from entrepreneurship and space flight to finally a love that's out of this world. It was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary this weekend. This is a picture of them taken on their wedding day five decades ago. And I actually stole this photo when I first left home. Unofficially, of course, I never left, as they well know. And as I said to my siblings this weekend, if laughter and friendship is the secret to long life and enduring love, then you guys nailed it. And we love you very much. And here's to many more. Yes, that is, not children, because you have enough with the challenging children that you have, but we love you. That's it for the show. You've been watching First News. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.